Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Bring yourself back online. No one knows what I'm thinking. Tell us what you think of your world. Some people choose to see the ugliness in this world, the disarray. I choose to see the beauty. Welcome to Still Watching Westworld, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Westworld. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Each week we break down the latest theories, baffling questions, and hidden illusions, as well as occasionally chat with someone who has worked on the show itself. This week we have the star of this episode, Zahn McLaren, who plays Akichita. Um, but before we talk to him, we will be breaking down the episode, Season 2, Episode 8, Kiksuya, directed by Uda Bresovitz and written by Carly Ray. And actually, even I lied, even before we get into that... We wanted to actually kick off with a listener email. Richard, are you ready for me to go super deep with you? Please. Yeah, deep into the mailbag. <laughs> deep into the mailbag. All right. So this one comes from Dan. This is a great email. Um, and Dan says, I've been mulling over the same question about the human mind egg copies, Delo slash Ford, etc. here in season two. Seems to me that this wouldn't be immortality. I've been interpreting these as an exact copy of someone's mind, but never does it seem to me as if the person's actual consciousness leaves their human bodies to live in the pearls or whatever they're called. So you die and a copy of you lives on. That's still not you, though. So who cares? Anyways, is this how you see it? It's been tearing me up, I tell ya, uh, says Dan. So, like, this question of digital immortality and what it means, um, we should say that the the name of this episode, Kiksuya, is, is Lako- a Lakota term for the word remember. And this idea of memories and having your memories in your new robot body seems to me a big part of whether or not that is actually you. Like, is that actually... Jim Delos, the one that we met um, in episode four, I think it was. So, like, what what do you think about this idea of of what makes a person a person, Richard, and what allows for some kind of digital immortality? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Because, like, you know, 
if a version of you, and it's a sentient version of you, you know, because, well, as, as sentient as this technology can get it, uh, so the, your version of you is gone, but another one is aware. So, like, it, you know, are you, yeah, are you still alive? I, not really, no. But like, in terms of the how the world is concerned, there is a consciousness that looks like you looked like and thought like you thought, and so yes, you do exist still. Um, so I think it's more. It's, it seems more about like almost like passing on, you know, the sort of mantle to it to a child, you know, uh, and continuing on your line that way ra- rather than you yourself staying alive forever. Something we talked about on this other uh, Westworld podcast that I do was this. Uh, I guess it's a well-known thought experiment uh, about this kind of uh, cloning or immortality, where. Um, let's say transportation to Mars existed, but what would have to happen is that you step into a transporter and you disappear. And then an exact replica of you with all your memories appears on Mars, but you Richard like are gone. And then a copy of you lives on in on Mars. Do you do that? Um, No, you you don't do that. (laughs) See, I said, yes, no, no. because I was sort of like, what's the difference? And you feel like there's a difference. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm and that's, a narcissist yeah, or ahead. something. I don't know. But No, I think-, I think that's the ineffable sort of thing of what makes you you. Right. Whereas I'm like, I'm being like a weird sociopath about it. I'm like, what's the difference? And you're like, no, this is me. I get to stay. <laughs> this you know? is me, Joanna. <laughs> Remember what Circus Musical taught us <laughs> to proudly say that this is me. Yeah, you're... you're proudest achievement the film that you made with hugh jackman the circus musical yeah, wrote directed produced catered everything right proudly says this is me <laughs> i designed kiala settles way uh beard uh, yeah, i was really all hands on um so anyway if anyone listening has other thoughts on sort of w- what makes i will say this i feel like perversely the sort of ghosty code version of ford is uh, a closer approximation of immortality as I understand it than the Jim Delos that we met in, in episode four. Yes. I, yes. Yeah, I think so. Um, but he, all, he mostly was, because of how people perceive him, you know, yeah. like it's, he's still, you know, whispering his weird poetry and stuff. So he might as well be the same thing. <laughs> but he, he like, so even without the physical body to me, that that is the kind of immortality. And that's exactly sort of what Westworld said in season one, where it was like, um, Beethoven, you know, just became the music, right? So right. Mozart, Mozart just became the music. So Ford just becomes a code. That's an immortality to me. A, a weird, like, glitching robot that doesn't even know how to f- pour fucking cream and coffee is not uh, immortality as far as I'm concerned. But right. uh, if you guys are listening and you have any other thoughts, you can you can email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We love to hear your thoughts on the matter. We are now going to talk about uh, what I think is far and away the best episode of Westworld ever. Yeah. Maybe one of the best episodes of television I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, it's really, really great. Um, and it has the feeling of like, you know, one of those lost man of science, man of faith, you know, one of these classic episodes that just like really solidifies the show, both creatively and sort of mytho- mythologically. Like I feel like so much of the show's philosophy and actually religion, I think, um, is so in, in like, you know, clarified in this episode while also it's just being like really fucking well-made. 
Yeah, and I think it, what's interesting is you and I both really loved uh, Akane no Mai, the sort of similar, uh, let's take a journey with a character, you know, characters we hadn't met yet and a different culture episode that we had this season. But that one was felt so almost self-contained and divorced from the lore of the show. Whereas this episode manages to do a lot of that and is so beautiful and so compelling uh, while interacting with the entire timeline of Westworld that we've seen up to this point, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, which makes it, I think, just even that much better. And um, our reactions, I think, to this uh, Kiksuya and Akane no Mai means to me that in season three of Westworld, I think we should have even less <laughs> of like the main characters in the park and more of these side episodes into the other cultures that are um, in the offing in the park. You know, I think that that like I, uh, the Raj cold open was fun, but I would love a full Raj episode. Yeah. You know? Let's go exploring. You know, I, I think yeah. that, um, you know, if the show kind of takes on, you know, a sort of un- more ensemble quality like that. That's definitely possible. And I don't. I think it, kind of in the way that like Orange is the New Black has done that as it's gone on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like where they kind of moved Taylor Schilling, not into the background necessarily, but like into like m- more equally with the rest of the ensemble. Um, I think they could do the same with um, characters here. Yeah, I completely agree. So the the far and away the star of the show here is Anne McLaren, who plays Akichita, who, we've see, who was cast just this season but it's sort of been retconned into the previous season. Um, and we pick up with him sort of where we left. When last we saw Anna, who's Maeve's daughter, she was being snatched up by Ghost Nation. So it makes sense the man in black, who was in that same sort of sn- uh, shootout, would be near uh, the Ghost Nation people as well. And we see, uh, you know, that William, old William Ed Harris has somehow survived his multiple bullets yeah. to the body. He's a tough old bird. I mean, he, he's, yeah. Yeah. He, maybe he's the robot vulture yeah. of the, uh, of the poster this season, but um, that's some really good uh, crawling to the river acting. I think for Red Harris in this opening. Scene. You know what I was thinking as I was watching him? I mean, I was like, Oh, good for him. That's like, you know, that you're right. That it's good physical acting, but I was looking at him and I was like, has Ed Harris ever played a nice person? <laughs> And I was like going back through my head and be like, I guess he's like nice-ish in Apollo 13. There's this, I'm sorry that this is the first thing I thought of. I'm sorry that I have such a familiarity with it. But there's a movie called Milk Money. Oh, with Melanie Griffith. Yeah, with Melanie Griffith, right? Where he plays like a sad dad whose daughter, I think, hires a prostitute played by Melanie Griffith. I believe it's his son because it has that creepy dimension. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's the first thing that I thought. So of. here are instructions to our listeners: go watch Milk Money, <laughs> and then get back to us. Go watch Milk Money, and then appreciate that Ed Harris can play nice, and now he's playing uh, tough old vir- vulture crawling himself to the river. So, um, Akishito rides up, and this is he says alive, good, and then the, like one of his first lines is "I remember you." And as we already already said, the title of the episode is about remembering and memory and this character and what his memories mean. And uh, you know, we get him like keeping William alive because he thinks death isn't good enough for him right he deserves more right yeah yeah he's saying like you know he sort of has this spiritual idea about like death 
being a, a, a release from the pains right. of, of existence. So like he, he does not want Ed Harris to, or excuse me, to William to have any release. Yeah. And the other, the, this, this uh, episode is so beautifully written. I've watched it a couple times now and, um, the idea of memory obviously keeps coming up. Repeated lines come up uh, as a you know as touchstones in different scenes, and that's beautifully done. And then, of course, we, you want to look out for any mention of like door and passageway and stuff like that. So, you know, he says death is a passage from this brutal world. You don't deserve the exit. You don't deserve the door. Basically, is what he said to mm-hmm. him. You know, like mm-hmm. he's talking about something a little different, but actually maybe the same is what we find out because he knows so much more. Um, than we thought because the central conceit of this episode of course is like we've been thinking that Dolores is this special little Disney princess who was the 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 most woke and the first to wake up and all that sort of stuff earlier in the season we heard that the ghost nation refers to Akichita as the first um because he was he was awake long before Dolores and that is some great like F you white people storytelling, oh, sure. I think. You yeah, know, yeah. So. And, and, and and it echoes that line that um that William's daughter said where she's like, No one very few people bother to learn the language or like interact with that storyline. And so that's how you know that that they could be kind of o- awakening and, and conscious and aware for so long going unnoticed, you know. Right. And uh, yeah, and this episode even starts with like Ed Harris doing that like shitty white tourist thing where he's like, I don't know your language. I never yeah. learned whatever it was that Ford taught you, you know, like sort of thing. Um, and we should say that they're speaking um, Lakota. The um, And in my interview with Zon McLaren, he talked about, you know, he's part Lakota, his mom. He said he watched the episode with his mom, which is really cute. Mm. But uh, his mom, you know, taught him a lot about the language, but also that they had a consultant helping him with all the voiceover that he had to do and all of that. Um, but yeah, so even though Ghost Nation is a fictional tribe, they gave them a real language, which is Lakota. So um, a real living language. Yeah. Um. So then we get some of the, like the flashbacky stuff that we've seen over and over throughout the series from Maeve, you know, her and her daughter doing idyllic homesteading thing the little house on the prairie they should be churning butter but mostly they're getting clothing off the line and stuff like that um and then Maeve's daughter anna like hands hands Maeve a rock and she's like the ghost gave it to me it's great use of like the concept of ghost yeah, also in this yeah. episode um and she said the ghost gave it to me he said it was a warning he said he would be watching us and it's the it's the maze drawn in blood fun on a rock yeah um, he's not he doesn't have the gentlest touch <laughs> even though no. we find out that he's trying to be like protective and good it's like okay yeah. she is a child like maybe like something other than blood yeah maybe maybe uh you know trust mink yeah friend. something maybe, maybe a crayon yeah yeah steal um, a pen when you go back into the lab you know yeah uh, then we we cut over to Maven in, in the current timeline where we left her, left her doing very poorly on on the gurney, and uh, Sizemore has is like even more her defender than he was in the last episode, uh, in treating you know this this uh, you know lacking in compassion Delos employee to save her and help her, um, and he explains what she can do the amazing things that she can do. So, and what we find out, you know, spoiler alert for the end of this episode, presumably you're not listening to this before you saw the episode. We find out that this whole episode is a dialogue between Akichita and Maeve, which is, I think it's watching a second time. They tip their hand about two thirds of the way through, 
But for me, I didn't really, honestly didn't realize it until like just before the reveal. When did you? Can I confess just just now? Oh. <laughs> I, I got at the end that he was talking to her. Yeah. But none you said that I was like, oh, he was talking to her the whole time. Yeah. Okay. The whole the whole time they were mesh networking. And since she's fluent in every language, including Lakota, she could understand what he was saying. So this is a story that he's telling Anna, but also Maeve. I mean, he's telling it to Anna, too, but he's telling it to Maeve. And um, we cut back from, from Maeve back to the camp. And, like, Anna looks so scared. And he approaches her. And, like, it's so clear that she's scared. She's scared of the man in black and not of him. And he's just so immediately kind and gentle with her mm-hmm. that, like, we, you know, we're, Richard, you and I are not dummies. So, like, we knew that something better and deeper was coming for Ghost Nation. And so, like, the reveal that he's not there to hurt a small child didn't really surprise me. But the um, the turn in his demeanor... I think is really well done and immediately sort of intriguing. I don't know. What did you think? Yeah, no, I, I thought so. And I think he's so good in this episode and, and just the characterization where, you know, this, this kind of, you know, epiphany out of brutality and this sort of, you know, this, the, the, the idea that the more conscious you are of the world and your role in it, the more compassionate you become. And I, I just feel like it's this message for like, a, a, a hurt place you know a, a, like a like a wounded world like like this where we are right now like i feel like living in the wrong world and and maybe the way out of that is to just kind of try to commune and connect and to help each other sort of see you know some sort of higher truth and i think that i don't know the episode felt really like pertinent in a way absolutely and um i think it underlines something that you and i have been sort of circling all season which is Dolores's approach feels wrong <laughs> because yeah. mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's so deterministic. I don't know if that's actually a word, um, but it's so um, lacking in compassion often and uh, sometimes usury, whereas for what, for something that Dolores believes is the greater good. But her lack of her often her lack of compassion is something that, you know, we see better reflected in Maeve. And I see Akichita as like the uh, most evolved version of that, you know. Yeah. And I think that there's definitely some commentary on race being made here, you know, mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. it's not just um, a Native American person his narrative uh, that we were so unaware of, but he was living this huge story, you know, that sort of the show hadn't been paying attention to, but that he's relating this to a black child and a black woman, you know, and then sort of by surrogate, a black woman, like, you know, and referring mostly to white oppressors. Like it, I don't know, it felt very pointed, but also, you know, but like thoughtful and sort of gentle at the same time. Like it, it just, I don't know, like it just like, where the hell has this episode been? You know, this is like such a striking piece of like philosophy and religion and politics that like, it just, it just really elevates the show. Hugely. And something that, um, once again, I, I feel like I always do this where I like spoil the interview that's coming at the end of the, but, uh, Zahn said that the main reference that, uh, Jonah Nolan gave him when he talked to him about this episode was Terrence Malick. And I was like, yeah, yeah. For sure. Zahn, Zahn was saying like Thin Red Line was like his, because there's so much dialogue less, uh, acting done here and such poetry in it uh so i would say malik malik at his best right like malik uh, yeah good malik not like yeah twirling and you know salt flats malik <laughs> <laughs> right, 
right, right. But like thin, I, thin red line is my favorite Malik, and so you know, uh, or you know, Tree of Life, I think is also really good. So, um, so yeah, so I think no, with the assumption that Akisha is talking to Maeve this whole time, then this this line that he has that kicks off basically his story when he's talking to Anna Maeve's daughter, he says. You can remember all the things you've seen, can't you? All the lives we've lived. Uh, so can I. That's not really apply to Anna, right? Like we have no concept that she's super awake. She might be a little awake, but but that seems like more something he would say to Maeve. So Akicha's stories kicks off the beginning of his narrative in his tent with someone, uh, a, a friend of yours, right? Well, not a friend, but I did go to high school with Julia Jones. She was in my sister's class and was, you know, as you can see in the show, <laughs> like gorgeous and sort of a very, uh, you know, sort of aloof, untouchable person. I mean, not, not like mean, but like just sort of like a kind of God at, at high school. Uh, and so, yeah, it's been fun kind of watching her career uh, over the years. She was in a couple of the Twilight movies, various other things, but, but this is a nice role for her. Yeah, so I think her character her character's name is Kahona, uh, and she plays Akichita's, you know, like, wife, his partner, his love. And something that I think, you know, of all the other things that this episode is accomplishing, it gives us what I think is the best love story in all of Westworld so far in the span of, like, 50 minutes. <laughs> Right. To, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No. It's great. And and just this kind of like the the epic search for her and the kind of repetition of it and, um, yeah. you know, the crossing, but you know, between planes of existence to find to find her. Like it has. Yeah. It has a very like classic kind of heft and sweep to it. Um, in a way that like in the past on this show, like I haven't necessarily always bought the emotional connection. You know, like. Because I'm like, oh, it's programmed in or whatever. But like here, I, I think this episode makes a really interesting point about like, well, okay, so yeah, it was programmed in, but like, what, like, who cares? It's, it's still real now, you know, like, like the, the idea of sort of that, that, that something could be sort of only real if it was sort of purely realized, you know, or, or purely made. And it's like, no, I mean, like you, your experience is your experience and wherever that experience is coming from, it doesn't change the fact that to you it's real. And it does, even if you're aware that it began as an artifice, like it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. And like this instant connection between them, like the, the scene in their, like, you know, in their tent, I guess it's a TB. I don't want to say the wrong thing. They're, they're, you know, where they live. Uh, and this call and response that they have of, you know, take my heart when you go, take mine in its place, which is repeated in the episode. And it's just like, it's an immediate connection that I think you feel. I am not as familiar with Julia's work as you are, uh, though I love her in this episode, but, but Zan is so, like I, I think the, you know, listening to back to this podcast, the record will reflect that I was really excited about his casting. Uh, you know, I thought Fargo, he was incredible in Fargo season two, and he's just like uh, you're. I for me, I'm just instantly with him in this episode, and we've and it's also fun and striking because we've seen him in this dramatic paint, and so to see him sort of washed clean, uh, you have just an immediate. Uh, even more uh, accessibility and humanity to him, you know, that's just really striking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we, you know, we see how quickly his storyline interacts with, uh, you know, the, the lore of Westworld where we see that he 
walked into the you know original beta town of Westworld when Arnold died when Dolores killed him and he finds the little maze toy um, and starts to wake up and question the nature of his reality and this idea that it kind of um, makes him a little crazy at first you know he um, yeah he gets obsessive he gets obsessive he starts carving it on hides which is you know not a Super but again, he's he's a, he's a serious fellow, you know. He's, <laughs> he's given children bloody rocks to, as as a means of comfort. So, yeah, uh, yes, it's true. Bloody rocks and freshly, uh, you know, skinned hides. These are the things that he has uh, decided to put his art on, and he's just like, you know, I I still don't have like a literal explanation of what seeing the maze does in order to like wake someone up in their head wake a robot up in their head yeah i kind of Still almost think of yeah. it as like as like um like a word if you were hypnotized a word that would snap you out of it or something you know that like maybe buried buried deep in the code of these hosts like that is a visual trigger meant always designed like deliberately by 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 ford to, to or by tr- arnold yeah or, or by arnold or both of them i don't know but like mm-hmm. to, to to awaken them um you know, and uh, although later in the episode, uh, Ford does call it a mistake and, you know, uh, so I'm not sure. But yeah, it was it's a little confusing. But like as a narrative device, like I don't mind it because it has this kind of interesting mystical kind of quality about it. Well, I think that. Um, yeah, I guess I don't I, I guess I feel more comfortable in this episode not having it fully defined than I did in season one, not feeling like I fully understood what the maze really meant but yeah as like a manchurian candidate-esque trigger word or trigger visual like i I don't mind it at all and it works really well here and the fact that yeah he begins his search here is is kind of incredible and then we get uh the moment that i thought of you of course immediately richard akichita wanders into the desert Mm -hmm. as his voiceover is happening and who does he find there Oh, you know, just naked Ben Barnes. That's all. Just naked uh, no Ben Barnes. No big deal. I didn't make a little noise when he was on screen. Um, <laughs> I mean, yes, he was like hor- horribly sunburned and, and, and insane. And like um, blistered. But yeah. like, I don't, I'll take it, you know. Um, and, and in fact, you know, I'm, I'm recording this. I'm, I'm at the edge of a desert. And I'm going to go wandering into it in the hopes that I will find my own <laughs> naked Ben Barnes. Um, yeah, it was good to see him again. My guess is this is definitely the last we'll see him. Yeah, this feels like it for Ben. I'm glad that they gave us closure on that, though. And yeah, the, like, and, how did he get back? And but that, like, that closure, like, in, in fact, unwitt- unwittingly, like, he was kind of helped, you know, set this all in motion in a way by saying this is the wrong world, which is such an interesting, fr- you know, turn of phrase. And yeah. um, I just love all that language. And I wanted to mention something about, about Carly Ray writing this episode. Yeah. Um, she's written a couple others. Um, the people who are fans of this episode in particular – um, and haven't watched West, uh, excuse me, The Leftovers. Uh, she co-wrote an episode in the third season called Certified, where, where Amy Brenneman's character kind of takes the lead. And it's one of the best episodes of the show. So it's now looking back and realizing that it's no surprise that this episode is so well done because she's extraordinarily good at these kind of complicated, mystical kind of episodes. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, I, I, I I think her name it's it's one of those things when you get really deep into a show and you 
like make sure to look up who wrote every episode and who directs every episode. And then you get excited when you see a certain name on an opening credit and you're like, Oh, Oh, it's a Carly Rae episode. That's, that's amazing. So, um, and I'm so sorry. I did this a little bit out of order because I went to Ben Barnes. I got too excited to talk to yeah, you about Ben Barnes. Okay. And I forgot about um, what happens before that. It's basically like Akichita's waking up. All this is happening. And then Ford orders this new narrative where he turns the like peaceful ghost nation, or at least some of them, into these painted warriors, these these brutes, these, uh, I think they said like, you know, silent but deadly sort of types and um he's got this great line here where he says like i came out breathing this time i came out breathing fire uh which is just like incredible line yeah and uh you know we watch him just like brutalizing people and uh we see him wipe the blood on his face with his own hand so that's how he gets that like marking and um and and so he's like, he woke up, he got kind of a hard reset to this different personality, you know, separated from his family, out there killing people. And then he sees um, the the blistered angel of the desert, Logan. Yeah, because he's, cause he's <laughs> exactly, he's got this, because even though they, you know, rewire him and everything like that, like, there's this kind of restlessness in him, this kind of yearning, yeah. this search. And um, I think that's such a, like, a beautiful... This whole episode is, but like, the, the, it's such a beautiful like metaphor for like a sort of restless spirit in the, in real life, you know, and 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 kind of um, that kind of existential itch. Like, it, it's the kind of thing that like I'm not a religious person, but like this episode kind of makes you understand why people would be religious, you know. Absolutely, absolutely, I completely agree. I think there there are are expressions of spirituality that uh you know i'm an atheist slash agnostic but like when i see them i'm like that's beautiful and that's yeah. something that i wish that i almost wish that like i could access better i just know? wish it didn't come with all the you know shitty dogma and all that you know right, it, not all right. religion does i don't mean to imply that but a lot of it does <laughs> some institutional yeah. things do yeah ex- exactly um yeah and so he says he says that like you know logan says we're in the wrong world this is the wrong world Yes, great, great line. And then uh, the voiceover, Kichita says, his words crack something open in me. Um, something else that I learned from the conversation I had with Zan is that he did his voiceover at the end and didn't know what it said. So a lot of these scenes where he like, has to wander around wordlessly, uh, he just had to sort of trust <laughs> that there sure. would be like some sort of guidance on it later, you know? Um and then we see him come back to his village, like he's trading, you know, he and his, like, I, I would call them warriors, like are trading with the village. And he sees Julia Jones, he sees uh, Kahona. And it's just like, it's just beautiful. I'm sorry, Richard, it's just beautiful. Like he's, he's this like, killer warrior but you know he really isn't in his soul and he sees her and she doesn't really know him and she's sort of disconcerted and everyone all of the villagers are really protective of her because he's like you know an outcast in the place that used to be his home and he's just immediately like taken and and it's i don't know yeah i mean amazing it, it it felt it feels so um like i don't mean to like bring too much of the real world into this but like yeah i think watching the episode i was part so moved by that moment and then and then subsequent moments where he's um you know imparting his wisdom and open and waking other people up was that like wait you could just like 
have some sort of realization and stop being a horrible person. Like, like, you know, and I'm just like wishing that on, I don't know, a, a lot of people in this country right now uh, and, and elsewhere, you know, and I'm just, it's just like, it's such a nice, um, yeah, like it's, it's such a good, like nonviolent way to approach the problem of, of, you know, a violence of, 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 you know, aggression or whatever, you know, just this idea that like, it would be enough to realize that you, you know, that, that something else is possible. I don't know. Yeah. And as he's going through this realization, you know, we see a repeat of some violence we saw earlier where he like cut a man's throat. And this time he like doesn't yeah. want to do that. Um, we also cut back to Maeve, uh, you know, who, you know, if my interpretation is correct, is just listening this whole time. Um, and we see her get cut open in a way, you know, we've seen these robot characters that we've come to care for cut open in ways in the past, but there's something about, cause you know, they, they slice her throat open, like sort of in a weird lateral way down to her chest. Uh, and then like part of her upper arm is sort of cut open, like kind of flayed yeah. in a way that makes her look more vulnerable to me than like, I don't know if they had just taken her innards out, you know, it's totally. just sort of like something about the throat is just really it's it's and you can see her pulse still going underneath it. It's beautiful makeup, yeah. and then it's just like it's just really disturbing and and uh, compelling way they decided to flay her basically on that table. You know, yeah, no, totally, and and like the three streaks of blood on the white sheet. I mean, it, it's it's pretty looking, even though it's all you know, it's it's, it's gross stuff or gruesome stuff. Yeah, and then we see. I mean, like so. You, so we're watching this episode and I'm like, okay, this is going to be like a bottle episode where we're going to like learn a lot about Ghost Nation and I'm really excited to do that. Mm -hmm. But I don't expect any sort of like major revelation. But then we see what I presume is like the valley beyond is is this flooded, the thing that's flooded that they're all looking for in in like earlier in the season. Yeah. He sees it. It's like a server farm, a huge server farm in like a, you know, in a valley. Is that what it is? It's servers? I think what it is, is all the, where they've stored all the human consciousness data that they've captured over the years. And so I believe that that's what's in the Valley Beyond is like all this captured human data. And there's also literally a door. Right. <laughs> so um, this feels like uh, both the door that we've been talking about, though I don't, I don't imagine the door is just going to be a, you know, literal door, but both the door that we've been talking about and the valley beyond that we've been talking about. But he, I think this is what's under all that water that we've been seeing and we're going to see it again, like before the season's over. So so do you think there's any kind of metaphor here about this thing that white people are trying to discover uh, that's <laughs> already actually been known by native people? What? I don't yeah, know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's kind of interesting thing to think about. It's crazy. Um, and then we, so then we have him sneaking into his camp, waking up his his wife, uh, and she is obviously like terrified. Yeah, it's a, it's and, a tad problematic there. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it's in the service it's, of it's, it's for love. But it's kind of shot that way. Like he's shot to look like a total creep creeping yeah. into her tent like that. So, oh, sure. Um, <clears throat> and he like he binds her and he takes her. Um, but then just that approach, like J Julia Jones' performance as Cajona, as he like he tries to wash up the makeup, 
and then he just tries to like like his physicality as he like makes himself small and reaches out to her to approach her and her just paralyzing fear of what he's going to do to her and then their understanding their shared understanding of each other which is so satisfying to us the audience done with so little dialogue uh is just i'm just gonna keep praising this episode (laughs) you know like what Mm -hmm. else can i say it's amazing so um and uh, you know they they're looking for the door the valley beyond because like he went back for her because he can't go through it without her uh and then he's gone hunting for food or something and the techs find her and take her and this is so do you think that they, they they like this is the kind of thing where someone in the mesa or whatever was like oh hey we've got a host like we're wandering way far afield go pick her up like no big deal kind of thing right but because like yeah. is, isn't this somewhat reflective of like early early on in the first season wasn't there a problem there like some some of the hosts were just kind of wandering away and, oh, and they were like yeah there's an episode called the stray right uh and there's this like woodcutter which i think i'm sorry i didn't look this up um i think that might be who he's killing a couple times over and over again is oh, really? stray the guy he has is like the knife to his throat well, um, that would, i mean that would make a sort of thematic sense you know if they're referencing that but yeah but yeah the woodcutter from season one uh is the stray and yeah they pick him up and they're like what's he doing wandering all the way out there so like it makes sense that they would find her but why aren't they tracking him like why and i think we get a bit of that answer a little later on when he goes in for upkeep and he's like kept himself alive all these years and like maybe didn't have an update that like put a tracker in him. Yeah. Cause, but to me it seemed less about um, that they were specifically tracking her and more that she had, they had wandered into territory that they were monitoring for other reasons. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. it's, I, don't, I don't feel like they're keeping tabs on each individual host in this, in a way, but like, Anyway, yeah, that's how I kind of reconciled the fact that that he's that he's been so under the radar for so long. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think it's that's like a that's a legitimate answer. I think if someone wants to wanted to poke some holes in it, they might be able to. But what's really impressive about this episode is like I I know that they had clues in season one that Ghost Nation knew what the fuck was going on because if you like remember like the, the ghost nation, there's like a ghost nation kid that had like a wood carving of one of the Delos texts in season one. Mm-hmm. There was just this indication that ghost nation was aware of there being like multiple worlds and others and all this other stuff uh, as part of their religion, as part of the thing that they're interested in. But I don't know that they had this entire thing planned out in season one. Otherwise they would have cast Zon McLaren in season one, I think. Yeah. One theory that uh, a friend of mine had is um, the actor Eddie Eddie Rouse, I think is how you pronounce his name, Eddie Roos, who played uh, the character of Kissy, who's the guy in the very first episode that Ed Harris scalps and finds the maze on the bottom of his scalp. Mm-hmm. That actor actually died. Um, and uh, tragically, like after shooting that episode. And I think they had to, they had had, like plans for him in the season and they had to alter them because the actor had passed away. And so I don't know if they had, we, we know that in season one of Westworld, they had to pause production to sort of rewrite some of the back half of the season. So I don't know if they had something like this plan for season one and they had to recalibrate because an actor died in real life. Right. Um, or what, but, um, if this was planned or if this 
it feels to me like this wasn't fully planned. And so they retconned Akichita into all of Westworld that we've seen in a way that like almost perfectly makes sense. Yeah, you know, almost. there are a, like a few tiny holes, but I don't begrudge them because it fits so almost perfectly that I really admire it, you know? And it's just fascinating. This, 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 this idea, this, um, I don't know, this development that like, this whole time, a, a large number of these hosts have been moving through Westworld f- pretty aware of what's going on. Right. And just we had no idea and other people didn't have any. It's just like I just think that's such a cool added layer to add to this world, you know, to this kind of mythology. And I think it was it's so that it's so well done also really helps. But like it just adds such depth to the story being told. And I think it's great. Um, I completely agree with you. And we get, uh, like this really upsetting sequence where, which you, which you alluded to, which is like after Kohana is taken from him, he wanders everywhere trying to find her. And we see him wandering through plot lines that we understand, like Las Mudas or Sweetwater, and he won't, um, let himself die and you know we find out later deck you know because if he dies he gets recalibrated this is something we find out in the episode so he kept himself alive and out of danger um even even as he put himself his like native body in dangerous territory he's like i went to places where i a native character would be uh you know that were threatening to me and i had to keep myself alive and I did all of this in pursuit of my love. And uh, and then he says, on, on, the, on my darkest day, you helped me. You gave me the strength to keep going. And this he is saying to Anna, who gave him some water when he's doing the old Ed Harris uh, crawl on the ground. And um, like that, that piece of the puzzle is so satisfying to be like, okay, if he's not a threat to her, why is he so preoccupied with this little girl that doesn't belong to him? Right. And then we find out why. Yes. And it's satisfying. Um, and this idea, you know, you and I had talked about uh, what Maeve would find when she found her daughter. And we talked about this idea of replacing her daughter with a different uh, little girl. And that's, I think, when I brought up the, <laughs> the movie About Time. Oh, and how, right. yeah. how, like, startling and upsetting it is for that, um, for Donald Gleason's character to find a child that's not his child at one point in the film. Yeah. And he has the same experience when he goes to find his wife and it's, they've replaced it with another. With a ghost, he says. With a ghost. Yeah. Yes. Oh, so good. And then he, and then he has to go travel to the freaking underworld. Like we're reading like Orpheus and Eurydice. Like this is, this is the Orpheus story. He has to travel to the underworld to find his dead love. And uh, so he has to die. Um, but before that, he yeah. does go to the, his old village and speaks right. to um, that older woman. She seems to be like kind of one of the elders of the tribe. Yeah. Um, and she has had some consciousness, you know, herself and, and maybe not from him. Maybe she saw his symbol and sort of it, it got into her head. But like, but it's just it's just it's just cool that like that this is not a messianic show, as it turns out. It's not yeah. all about Dolores and Maeve, like, I guess Maeve too, like the kind of like awakening. It's a lot of them are, are popping awake. It's just happening at different times, you know? So I just think that's like a cool kind of equanimity or something. I don't know. Yeah. And one of the things she, you know, like she's one of her awakening 
aspects is triggered by the fact that it seems like they took her son the way that they took uh, Akichita's wife. And um, this like very handsome young man who was in the village is replaced by another very handsome young man. Um, But it's not the same one. And that matters. And so but she and she talks yeah a little bit about um, the lore of Ghost Nation and the ones below. Yeah. 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 Which is below and all this sort of stuff. And it's interesting, you know, to the juxtaposition of that their reaction to um suspecting that something is not as it seems is to form a religion almost around it or or a lore a mythology around it mm-hmm. whereas other reactions have been to violently oppose it or whatever you know um and i think that that speaks to both again the kind of political allegories happening in in the episode but also an interesting little thing about like well but because that's how they were programmed by by the by Delos by Westworld with a sort of heightened spirituality because that is maybe how Native Americans are viewed by white people or whatever you know I just think that like it's there's a lot of interesting kind of meta commentary in the idea that like plenty of hosts are coming awake others some are reacting this way some are reacting this way and who's doing that reacting I think is just, is an interesting point that's being made absolutely I completely agree um and. In the fact that they can do all of that, which is so brilliant, as you laid out, and drop little nuggets of uh, show lore information Mm -hmm. is is so astonishing. So we find out like he goes in for he purposely dies so that he can go to the underworld to find his wife. And uh, we find out from the labs that, you know, the text that he's kept himself alive. He's an alpha two build. And we had already seen uh, him in the very early days, you know, like pitching. Well, we know he was there from the start because we saw it in this episode. We've also seen him in the real world pitching to Logan, um, you know, right. and William yeah, that's and right. stuff like that. Yeah. So um, we know he's like Angela and like Dolores. He's a very early model. Um, I don't know that I really understand you know, they're alarmed that he's an Alpha 2 model, that he hasn't been updated, uh, that he has been alive in the park for like a decade uh, and without any kind of update. And I don't know why this woman just says, like, put him back. It seems like a sort of ass covering move. Yeah. Well, but then, like, th- wouldn't you just, like, brick that thing? You know what I mean? Which is what they talk about doing with Maeve in season one when the techs want to cover their ass. So to me, it just it's it, it's showing I mean, I'm choosing to believe that it's showing like that there was all that there was, you know, for all of their slick technology and all that, there was still a ton of human error in how this whole project was was executed, you know, and how it how it ran um, in that, like oh, we only fixed them if we, or updated them if they got killed. And it's like, well, there are probably plenty of hosts and plenty of narratives in various worlds within the park that aren't in na- death narratives, right? So yeah. there could be tons that are stood or wandering around unupdated. And that's just like a breakdown in the functionality of this company, you know, which is clearly right. has a lot got figured out, but it has obviously, you know, has left a lot of room for error. Um, And then we get this echo of my favorite scene from season one, which is Maeve wandering uh, around um, the Mesa as um, Radiohead plays wordlessly. We see him wandering around the Mesa as heart-shaped box and Nirvana plays. I just, the first time I watched this, I said, fuck. And I stopped and I rewound and watched it again. And that happened the second time I watched it is I just wanted to watch the sequence again. Because there's something... um, you know, shout out to the director, um, Uda Brozovitz, 
who it's there's something beautiful and even more of a disconnect. Maeve wandering through the mesa looks bizarre. I don't know, bizarre enough. Him wandering through in his makeup, like in his tribal on, gear, on like an going escalator. on escalators. Yeah, as this music plays, is just genius and look I, I don't care if people are like but wait where is security wouldn't someone have noticed i don't give yeah. a shit i don't care like I, yeah. i'm i will suspend that dis that disbelief uh, as much as i can because it's just such an arresting sequence um and 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 it's yes so like the orpheus is it's exactly right you know um and uh yeah it's just this beautiful like uh mythological kind of thing i mean it's just anyway this episode's great <laughs> <laughs> let's just keep saying that yeah, this episode's yeah, great yeah. um and then uh and then he goes and he finds her and so um there's this really great uh podcast episode i'm not gonna necessarily speak to the, to the nature of the podcast itself but there's a podcast called paper wing show or it's a, i don't know it's a radio show i don't know that you can find on youtube uh, number 28 is called creating characters from your stories theme with Brian McDonald. It's something that I listened to recently just cause it's a uh, Brian McDonald is a, a professor and screenwriter who talks a lot about breaking down basics of storytelling and basics of screenwriting. And one of the, uh, things that he talks about that you see over and over and over again in screenplays that is always effective is a journey to the land of the dead. Mm-hmm. And, um, he talks about it like in, aliens like sort of uh this like underground sort of journey down where there are all these eggs in the caverns of aliens or in indiana jones that you know all the like tomb work and stuff like that this like this you know the hero goes into the land of the dead and comes back with knowledge this is obviously yeah like an orpheus myth but the way in which it's echoed throughout a lot of our like even like the most like mainstream of pop culture popcorn movies um and and it and how powerful it is and obviously we've seen cold storage before i've never seen anything that happened in cold storage that made me cry and <laughs> this actually made me cry um which is him finding his wife her being like not just having forgotten him but being d- dead really dead yeah and him weeping for her for the loss of her yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and this, this epic journey complete in the most surreal of ways, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and not really necessarily understanding a hundred percent how much he's processing, you know, for him, he's, he's just in this complete, like, who the hell knows? Like, what is anything, you know, like, what is he looking at? Like, what, 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 what is this building? Like, you know, yeah. this complete, it's so fantastical for him. And yet, there remains this one constant, this, this clarity about her. And so yeah. it doesn't matter what else is around him, how surreal it is, how weird it is. It's just like, okay, this is the one thing I understand, you know, and it's enough to just understand this. And as you mentioned before, this, uh, these huge reserves of empathy that he has mm-hmm. as a character, the fact that like in this moment, which is his most tragic moment, he finds the space to notice, you know, that this other young man from his village is also there. And what that teaches him, um, he says, that was the moment I saw beyond myself uh, because that young man is there and he knows that that young man's mother Mm -hmm. is missing him. And he's like, for every body in cold storage, there's somebody missing them. Yeah. And uh, he takes a souvenir sort of 
uh, back with him from, from that young man in the storage. Uh, before he does that, he goes back to the table. Uh, he closes his eyes, tears run down his cheek. I'm just, I'm just calling it out. Another beautiful shot. Gorgeous. Loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he goes back to his village. He tells this woman, like, we can't get them back, but I know how to close the door and open another forever. Um, and he says, we're all bound together. And, um, what we learn as this episode progresses is like, this is true that, that his cornerstone when he was created was, uh, to defend the honor of his tribe, protect his tribe. And what happens as his experience in the park progresses is his definition of tribe changes and it becomes all of the people, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, that's, as you say, that's beautiful. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even, you know, it's kind of like almost like a Truman Show-esque thing where you're like, yeah, even we kind of know in the audience, like we know like, oh man, if they do find a way to leave, like what, how are they going to function? Like, like, yeah. they, like there's actually probably not anything past that door, you know, for, for them. Um but just believing in it, again, going back to the spirituality thing, just believing in it is enough to kind of sustain them and keep them going, which is, you know, again, sort of putting, um, highlighting the the purest value of, of you know, faith, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so then this is where we get the, like, weird explanation for why the maze is underneath the scalps. Like, so Akichita goes on basically this mission to wake people up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he... I don't know. His his friend says like hide it from them, and so he puts it under the scalp. I don't know that it really <laughs> makes sense, but I don't know that I mind it either. You know, so um, oh, it's th- okay. That's what it is. So it's it's yeah. It is, he's making these markings in the in the um in the the, the host's scalps, and then yes. they're putting them back on. Yes. How does that work? They're sew- they sewing them? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like more of the hosts would have like Franken stitches. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I don't know how it works. Yeah, well. So this is one of those little holes. Yeah. But I like this idea of hide it from them. And that's why it's there. Because like why? Like that's always been a question to me. Like why the hell was that maze inside the scalp of that uh, character in season one, episode one? This is their sort of attempt to answer that. I'm not sure it fully succeeds, but it's kind of beautiful. So um, Yeah. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake at The New Yorker, to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and then, you know, we see him watching over Anna and Maeve and, um, 
he says once again this very empathetic thing where it's like i was trying to warn you i was trying to help you but it, in this world it's easy to understand uh intentions it's easy to misunderstand intentions yeah that was so sweet yeah what a what an empathetic thing to say yeah you know and so we get this remix flashback of what we've already seen from Maeve, which is like him peering in the window of her house, the man in black showing up to like kill her daughter and brutalize her. And, um, why is, why is man in black doing that? This happens like right after Juliet, his wife kills herself. Oh, so, so he's, he's just like on a tear. Yeah. He's, he's breathing his own fire. Like he just goes into right. the park and does like whatever the fuck he feels like in order to like work through his shit. Um, and, you know, we see that, like, Maeve has made a promise to Anna of, like, I will always keep you safe. And he, and Akichita says, it, this is, this is, so it's like 46 minutes in, he says, you know, she says, I'll always keep you safe. We see she doesn't. And he says, Akichita says, it was a promise you couldn't keep. So you know yeah. he's talking to Maeve in right. that moment. It was a promise you, Maeve, couldn't keep to your daughter. Um, and... Uh, that's and that's the and that anchors us in the timeline because when that happens we know that Maeve went to the mariposa so that's like you know and and the man and juliet's dead and that's where we are and then we get this other great scene where like zon mclarnon uh not only gets to do have this whole episode the best episode of westworld ever to himself he also gets a great scene with anthony hopkins in the most uh, surreal like diorama setting like so cool yeah Yeah, frozen bear frozen warriors um, like natural history museum like yeah it's really interesting yeah and um you know, once again, I know, I apologize, I keep spoiling this conversation, but I swear there's more to it. Uh, he told me that, you know, he went into the scene expecting that he would do the same sort of like dead-eyed analysis mode that every other actor on the show has done, and he knows what that looks like, so he was prepared to do that. And they told him they wanted him to do something different. So you see him frozen, Ford tells him to go into analysis mode, and then he kind of is fighting that yeah. uh, mm-hmm. a bit. He's frozen, but in his eyes, almost almost entirely just in his eyes, uh, as they kind of like shift back and forth, he's fighting the control that Ford has over him, uh, As even as he like gives him the answers. And then, you know, you already talked about um, re- the reinterpretation of the Westworld mythology through the lens of a Native American culture. And sure, like a made up ghost nation, Amer- a Native American culture that like isn't necessarily authentic the same way that Shogun world isn't necessarily authentic. Cause it was written by Lee Sizemore. But th- when he's, I like gasped when he says like, you know, Ford asked him a question, like how long have you been aware or whatever? And he says, when the death bringer killed the, or when did you first see the symbol, the maze? And he says, when the death bringer killed the creator. And I was just like, mm-hmm. that's, it's fucking religion. So good. Yeah. So that's when when Dolores killed Arnold. When there's, the Deathbringer um, killed the creator. There's yeah. this fascinating play that um recently the New York Times said was one of the best plays since, since uh, Angels in America, um called uh, Mr. Burns, a post electric play, and it's uh, about uh, the, a post apocalyptic world, um is set in like you know a hundred years after the apocalypse, then further afield and then for even further like a thousand mm-hmm. years later um and in each section it's them talking about one episode of the simpsons and you see as it goes from remembering an episode of a funny tv show that people liked oh, to wow. kind of performing it as a kind of ritual and then by the third part it's become fully a religion uh wow. and it's a really interesting kind of odd play um 
but this reminded me so much of that, that like even in how whatever span of time that they've already invented new terminology and it's taken on this kind of mystical thing. And I think that's a, just a fascinating bit of like anthropology almost. Absolutely. Wow. That sounds amazing. And I would, I would love to uh, see that, but like as it, as it transplants over to this show also just like, I don't know. I just want to call Dolores Deathbringer now. Yeah, Holy totally. God. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and he, yeah, so he says, my primary drive is to maintain the honor of my tribe. I gave myself a new tribe, spread the truth. There isn't one world, but many, and we live in the wrong one. This will help them find the door. Ugh, it's just like, it brings together so many threads. Yep. The door, the wrong world. There are many worlds. Um, and he says, a door is a hidden place, a door to a new world. The door may contain everything that we've lost, including her. And I'm like, uh, so like, yeah, you've got this. You know, this is to me a very. You know what this is, Richard? This is this is the freaking constant. That's what this is. This is the episode totally. of Lost yep. called the Constant, which it, is one of my favorite episodes of television. It's telling a long story, like yeah. you know, where it's taking it, it's it's sitting us down and being like, okay, let, let's tell you a story now. Like in the yes. midst of all of this craziness, which is such a, a wonderful mode to be in you know for for an episode because it it, yeah. it it just it it's there's stuff happening but it's it's in the past it's already kind of settled and so we're just learning things and it's it's like um it's such a it's such a lovely i, I wouldn't want them to do it every episode obviously but it's just such a lovely no. kind of break from the main action but it's 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 a like let's tell you a story that story will illuminate some world rules of this world yeah and let's anchor it in a very believable and potent uh Love, like love pull, a romantic pull. Yeah. Uh, in in losses between Desmond and Penny, and here is Akichita and Kohana, and he's like that. His driving force is like, I want to get to the door because maybe I'll find her. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like want to cry again just thinking about it. Um, and so Ford says this thing to him. He says, "I built you to be curious, to look at this empty world." I so you know, inside baseball, I do show notes for this episode. I write them usually the second time I watch the episode. I write them down. Usually they're plot based. Towards the end of this episode, I just started writing the dialogue out yeah. <laughs> because it was like yeah. so good. So, it's so good. <laughs> but so Ford says, "I built you to be curious, to look at this empty world and remaining into it. You've been a flower growing in the darkness. Let me give you some light. When the Deathbringer comes for me, you will know to gather your people and lead them to the light." So, uh, so this whole time we were wondering like what was Ford's grand plan, but this with this very staged suicide by by host, you know, blah blah yeah. blah, and it's like he fucking knew the, the, he had this whole other thing working yeah. that we knew nothing about until just now. But like exactly. th there was such a bigger component to this than we had any idea, and I think it's such a cool way to reveal that. And even it's if so this good. is the writers, you know, kind of like figuring that out later and retconning it back in, I don't care. They did it so well that it it doesn't, you know, a thousand percent. Completely agree. Um, and then uh, another friend of mine was pointing out to me that um, Ford also referred to uh, Dolores as, uh, let me find it. It's from season, season one, episode five, uh, when Ford is talking to Dolores back in season one. And uh, she's, she's n like naked in an analysis mode and he's sort of being a little combative with her. Uh, and he says, you know, because so here in this episode, he calls a kichita a flower growing in the darkness. Um, 
And I should name my friend because just to give her credit, Kim Renfro from Business Insider, who I've already mentioned, who's great on Westworld. She went back and watched the scene from season one where Ford says to Dolores, your mind is a walled garden. Even death cannot touch the flowers blooming there. Have you been hearing voices? Has Arnold been speaking to you then? And then he says, I wonder if you, he said, and then he says to Dolores back in season one, he says, I wonder if you did take on that bigger role for yourself, would you have been the hero or the villain? Mm-hmm. And so uh, this idea of like um, Akichita and Dolores both as flowers growing in the darkness and what roles they have to play once the light reaches them. And uh, for Akichita, it is like protective hero. And perhaps by design for Dolores, it's a uh, villain. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think that I, you know, and I think that there still remains a question on the show and as a, as a whole, uh, how much of this is part of Ford's plan? How much of it has gone past that, you know, right. that, into the realm of the unpredictable and, and stuff that he could not have planned for? I don't really know. I think, but I think that, yes, yeah, certainly he set these, these plates spinning, you know, and, and, and he set Dolores in such a way and he set Akichita a in a, in a certain way and, and perhaps Maeve and as, you know, so like it all, um, yeah, it it all sort of comes together in an interesting way. I just like, I think this was such an important counterbalance to yeah. Dolores's awakening, um, because I think the show is about re- revolt, you know, obviously, but there's an internal aspect to that as well, you know, a, a sort of questioning of one's world that Maeve or, or Dolores pretty quickly was just like, all right, fuck these people, let's kill them, you know. Whereas this storyline, it's about people grappling with it in, a, in an internal way which is a, an important part of component of you know a freedom i guess absolutely yeah and it's um the performance the performer and the way it's written like it, what's so fascinating about this episode and what it accomplishes is that um dolores and Maeve are these characters that we've been following from the beginning and Akichita is a character that we're really only getting to know in this episode. And already I would put him, uh, in my mind, on equal footing with mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. in terms of importance for the show. Oh, for so. sure. Yeah. Um, and and this, this striking final scene where if you didn't get it before, <laughs> it makes it clear <laughs> that he's been dialoguing with Maeve uh, as, yeah. she, as she lies seemingly not really sentient on the table. Uh, and, and I just like the way they do it with, with Charlotte being like, who's she talking to? And it's like, oh, uh, that's what she's been doing. And then that, again, you know, you have lines here in the, in the show notes, but those final lines, um, you know, about we'll guard your daughter if you stay alive, find us or die well. And then she says, take my heart when you go, which is what, you know, uh, the couple had the been saying to each response. other. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, that's gorgeous. <laughs> and like, it makes me nervous that Maeve is dead, but I don't think, I don't think she is. It's gorgeous. It's like a, you know, come come home with your shield or on it sort of like, yeah. you know, like there's honor and death too. like die. I'm not going to say I'm going to save you, but I'm going to do what I can to help you. Uh, all of that is is just amazing. Um, and, and that brings us to the end of the episode. Really quickly before we wrap up two things. One is that Emily came for uh, her dad and promised Ghost Nation that she has like she has more punishment in store for him so that they can relinquish him to her care. Yeah. Cause she's not going to let him have an easy death. So presumably um, we will get more of that in the next episode. And then um, Akita says this 
thing. He says, now it is time to find the door. Okay. So he's on the path of the door. William's on the path of the door. Dolores is going to the Valley Beyond. Bernard's going to the Valley Beyond, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says, before the Deathbringer ends us all. Mm. And I, I don't know if he has extra information beside the fact that Dolores killed Arnold and he killed and uh, Dolores killed Arnold and she killed uh, Ford. And so he's like, well, she brings death. So she will end us all. Or, uh, you know, if he has added information about what Dolores's agenda is that we don't know, like, is her agenda some kind of, she talks about liberation, but, uh, you know, he seems convinced that her version of liberation is destruction. So, right. Cause she knows what she, she knows what the Valley is, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. She hasn't told us what it is, but she knows what it is. Yeah. Because she was shown it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that is an interesting line that should not go overlooked because there's a pretty big implication there. Um, but yeah, who knows what it actually means. So there we go. So, so that is it. That is season two, episode eight. Uh, I would say season two, episode six. I was feeling really shaky about the show mm-hmm. and we didn't have any screeners. <laughs> yep. And then we got screeners and, got and screeners. I was like, and then I was like, oh, episode seven's pretty good. And then I watched episode eight. And I was like, what the? this is so good i mean so. i know we've like said it 18 times it's a truly stunning hour of television it's like so good and 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 the way that it like i said like the way that it in, it it emboldens this show it 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 makes it that much richer and more meaningful and and moving you know because that's uh, uh, having an emotional connection to the show hasn't always been easy um in a way but like it, this episode just clarifies it so well and just um, such good performances and such beautiful writing. And uh, yeah, I mean, like, I, 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 I'm almost nervous to watch episode nine because I'm like, how can it, I don't really want to go back to the regular version, but you know. Exactly. Well, um, hopefully they will see it enough. Like, I think we're, uh, have enough momentum now toward to the end. We yeah. just have two episodes to go that I can't really see them like really losing the thread again. No. I think, you know, whatever happens in the penultimate and the ultimate episode and the the last episode, uh, I believe is 90 minutes. Oh so, yeah. Oh boy. So we have like, yeah, two, two and a half episodes left of Westworld. But I'm, I'm so, gl- I'm so glad, Richard, that we decided to podcast this season because yeah. I'm so glad that I got to talk about this episode with you. And, um, I I can't wait to hear what other people think. And once again, uh, please do email us uh, still watching pod at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts or, or ideas about the episode uh, right now, before we go, we are going to hear my conversation with the great Zon McLernan. We are joined today by Zon McLaren, who is starring in episode eight of Westworld. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, everybody. Thank <laughs> you, Joanna. Uh, have you? I, I've actually talked to a couple uh, Westworld actors who haven't seen their episodes yet. Have you seen this uh, episode eight already? Yes. Okay. Perfect. It's so good. It's like it's the best episode <laughs> of the show. It's so good. I'm so excited. Oh, God. Yeah. So. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. It's good to hear. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're getting that all over the place, but I just wanted to say that. Well, no, no, not, no, really. I've just, <laughs> I've just talked to uh, just one other person, and um, I, I, yeah, it was. Uh, it's kind of hard, you know, for an actor to watch the stuff, and I, I watched it with my mom, and she loved it. So that's <laughs> <laughs> it made it all worthwhile. So that's all that matters is my mom's opinion. <laughs> So charming. Um, I already told you before we started recording this that this is my favorite 
episode of Westworld ever. I was wondering what you thought of when the Nolans first approached you with this idea to do this episode almost entirely in Lakota. Like, what were your thoughts about doing this episode? Well, it kind of, uh, you know, in the beginning, you know, I didn't know that it would be uh, a full episode on Akichita. They they talked about it being a, uh, you know, exploring Ghost Nation and uh, exploring my my character. Uh, you know, there it, it, there was it's a unique process. I guess they don't give you quite a bit, so you're you're kind of um, you have to kind of tap into a, a different. Uh, aspect of your acting because you're usually a bit more prepared with the material um, scripts you get a script beforehand etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's just a unique way and i think that's done on purpose uh specifically for me i'm not quite sure about the other actors but it was just given to me in pieces mm-hmm. so uh they would try to explain kind of what the kichita was going through and kind of explain a, a timeline and and you take that information and you try to hit your mark and be honest as possible. You get to work with one of my favorite uh, working TV directors in in this episode. Can you talk about your experience working with Uta and what and what that was like? I've been working with a lot of women directors lately, and I kind of prefer it. It's just a different approach. Um, uh, you know, I hate to use the word a female approach, but um, it it's easier for me to. Um, to get in touch, especially with the love story going on, and her Uta explaining to me the love story and and directing me through it, it uh, I just find it to be a little bit easier to work with a female. I just like her process of taking control of the set mm-hmm. um, as a as just a strong female, and she just takes over. You know, it's her it's her vision, and um, I just try to hit my mark and. Uh, convey that vision uh, as an actor. Yeah, that makes me want to hop ahead just a few questions uh, that I had and, mm-hmm. and ask you about that. The love story between Akichita and Kahona, uh, you and Julia only have this episode to sort of establish it uh, with the audience. And then it, right. of course, has this tremendously profoundly emotional conclusion in the cold storage interaction. Um, right. And I'm just wondering, what are what are some of the challenges or some of the approaches to really land an emotional journey that you only have the span of one episode to convey? Well, uh, when you have somebody like Julia Jones, opposite, <laughs> and you're <laughs> acting off Julia, uh, she's so, you know, she's so good and she's so beautiful and, and she's a very giving person and, 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 you know, there was, uh, some things that we did in that, that cold storage scene that I asked her for her help and she was just there for me to, um, you know, you can't see it, but there was some things going on, uh, uh, when they were covering me below, uh, my face, like holding my hand and, and, uh, just being available emotionally there for me. Um, and you know, just having to look into her eyes was was enough for me. Um, you know, actors fall in love with their co-stars all the time, and it's very easy <laughs> for me to fall in love with the beautiful Julia Jones. She was just available there, and she whatever I asked her to do, she's 
she was just supportive all the way. Well, and the, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> and you in throughout this episode, you have so much um, beautiful voiceover that you do. Like uh, the dialogue's great, your delivery right. of it's great, but because of all that voiceover, that means you have to do a lot of silent acting, sort of as your own voice mm-hmm. narrates. Uh, what what is that yeah. experience like for you? Um, you know, Jonah and Lisa talked to me. Of, the best way they explained it to me was um, the episode would be very much uh, Terrence Malick kind of mm. Malick-esque, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. And obviously, I'm a huge fan of Terrence Malick, and um, one of the the uh, movies that sticks out in my head is The Thin Red Line. Yeah, um, there wasn't a lot of dialogue going on. It was all the facial, all in the eyes. And, you know, as long as I had the information that I needed, um, you know, the, the prep that I needed, um, it was pretty easy for me to, to get there. And, uh, and if something wasn't coming through, and, you know, Jonah or Lisa or uh, Udo or uh, whoever was directing that episode would, you know, uh, direct me through it. And um, it's just good to, you know, be a part of uh, such innovative filmmakers or TV makers and, and uh, writers. Um, it's very easy to get there when you have that kind of support. One of the most uh, stunning silent moments of the of the episode is is that sequence that plays out underneath um, the heart shaped box uh, Nirvana song that plays over it. It feels like a reference back to season one where Tandy Newton's character Maeve has a like sort of similar tour of the facility, sort of seeing inside of it um, awake. Mm-hmm. Did you use that as a as a reference point at all for that scene? No, uh, not not. Uh, specifically, I, I didn't. I was, you know, you're again, you're you're on the set, and um, you have so much information, and you know, you're trying to get the shot, and you're trying to get the scene, and yeah. television can be fast, uh, even though uh, Westworld was a lot more like shooting a film than it was television. I did do a show called Fargo uh, season two, where yeah. it was kind of the same, same, uh, not a lot of dialogue, and I just. I don't know. I, I enjoy doing that a lot more than saying two pages of dialogue. Um, and you know what? The, the voiceover stuff, you know, that they take the time. Uh, this production took the time. These writers and these producers and uh, creators took the time to make sure that language was right. And that's extremely important. Cordelia White Elk was the woman who. Um, translated all the dialogue for us. And she was there on the other side of the phone anytime I needed her. My mom is also quite fluent in, in Lakota. And uh, I'm also grew up around the language. And so I was familiar with it more than most actors would be familiar with it. Um, but, you know, they take pride in getting things right. Yeah. And I think that's really important for any, any production to, you know, it's based on a fictional tribe, but they used a, a a language that is still used today and is spoken uh, quite frequently by a lot of people in, in, the, uh, in the Lakota reservations and, and around South Dakota and North Dakota. And, um, so it had to be right, you know, and we spent a lot of time on that voiceover. We spent, I spent uh, approximately eight hours um, wow. doing that. 
yeah, it was it was a long process, but we got it right, and, and they took their time on it. And that that's what I was so impressed by because you know you walk into these ADR studios and you get one or two takes, and that's it. We spent a good eight hours doing that voiceover, and um, I think it was worth it. Well, so, you know, definitely. definitely. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. I, I did get, you know, when I covered season one of Westworld, I did get feedback from some people who were a little disappointed with Ghost Nation being sort of this maybe stereotypical, silent, savage right. character. And then when I saw that you were cast, right. knowing your work on Fargo, knowing your work on Longmire, knowing what you're capable of, I got so excited because you and Julia, I was like, well, great, we're going to get... We're going to get more Ghost Nation because you don't you don't cast <laughs> these actors if you're not going to give us something really good to work with. And so, uh, you know, what what does it mean to you to be able to sort of deepen um, that narrative uh, or that depiction of of the Native characters in this storyline? Well, I just think, you know, the show is, I mean, it's so innovative. Um, you know, just a visionary vision of of the creators and the, the boldness and the thoughtfulness that goes into this production, the courageousness that goes into this production is um, something that uh, when after I saw season one, I, you know, obviously wanted to be on that show. And I was really hoping that one day that they would explore those, those characters of ghost nation. You know, first off, the, the, those characters are, you know, it's a fictitious tribe made up, by a mind of Dr. Ford, who who thinks, you know, this is what a, the, the, you know, the tribe would be if, if uh, you know, in his mind. So it's kind of a tribe made up by a European person for Westworld. Right. So you kind of got liberties to, you know, to, you know, play with because, again, it's a white person who made up a tribe. <laughs> so it's not an actual tribe. Right. Um, so when they, uh, when they, you know, started sending me small bits of material, um, I was extremely excited to be, um, a part of it, especially when, uh, Jonah kind of said he was trying to go for the, uh, Malik kind of vibe, um, with not a lot of dialogue. Uh, and we didn't have the actual voiceovers obviously when we're shooting so i had no idea what you know the dialogue was going to be um throughout the the uh, the, the episode with the, the voiceover so when i did get that um the whole 10 pages of it um i was extremely excited especially because it's going to be done in in lakota mm-hmm. which you rarely see on any television program you know so I was very excited. So there are certain shots of you then sort of wandering through the wasteland, uh, you know, encountering Ben Barnes or whatever it is, wandering in the middle of, of these sand dunes. And you, when you're filming that, don't know what the voiceover is going to be. And so what then, right. what kind of direction then do you get from Uta or anyone else about how to, uh, you know, convey words that, you don't even have yet for what your character is experiencing in that moment. They, 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 they give you a, uh, you know, a, a kind of a vague, um, understanding or, uh, you know, an idea of what, what is going on in that scene, obviously, mm-hmm. and what is about to happen with that scene specifically. 
with Logan, I, I, you know, it's just Logan mentions the door and, and that means something or cracks open something in, in, uh, Akichita's, um, in, in his mind. And, and so that's kind of the information that, that they give you. And you, um, and then you have the dialogue on it on, on top of that. Um, so it's, um, you just, I don't know how to put it. You put, you hit your mark and <laughs> yeah. you try to be honest with it. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, that's, it's a unique process. It really is, but yeah. it's also a different process. And I, I, I learned a lot from, from doing that. Um, I couldn't imagine it any other way now that I look back on it. Well, they give you exactly what you need and all you need. I wanted to ask you about this, you know, amazing interaction that you get to have with Sir Anthony Hopkins, um, you know, which is dramatically staged because you have all these, like the frozen bear and the frozen sort of warriors around it. Right. Um, and then just, you know, like beautifully acted, beautiful dialogue and you sort of frozen and in analysis mode talking to him. And I was just wondering if you could just, just talk about that experience of working with Anthony Hopkins having to do it in analysis mode and what, what all of this, that means right. for you. That, that was probably the most difficult scene that I had to do. Um, you know, first off, Anthony Hopkins is, you know, one of my heroes, obviously. Um, and he's an incredible human being. Um, and, you know, you walk on the set and you meet this, you know, this, man and, and that you've admired all your life and so you have to get over that first <laughs> you're sitting there rehearsing and you're looking into the, the deep big beautiful blue eyes of Anthony Hopkins <laughs> and uh, you get over that nervousness at first and you know he's one of the greats he he really is he, you know he's one of our greatest actors that we have and uh, on top of that he's a beautiful human being and we actually had a, a lot in common um, you know, in between takes, we spent uh, a lot of t- time talking, but it was a difficult scene because <clears throat> I thought I was going to go into more of a, a regular uh, host mode where you kind of focus your eyes and then you talk. And they wanted something different. And I was expecting that they were going to have me do what everybody else does, but they asked me to freeze. And they asked me to... Uh, struggle with the dialogue and I had never seen that yet in any of the episodes. So I didn't really have a lot to go off of. And uh, so I had to act. And when you're acting and you feel like you're acting, you kind of, you know, you want, you don't want to feel like you're acting. So it was a difficult process for me, but I think it turned out okay. And uh, you obviously were able to see as a viewer that I did freeze. And that's why I was worried about um because it was a completely different mode i'm able to communicate with him but uh and say my you know my dialogue and and answer his questions but in a frozen mode it wasn't the analysis mode you know what i mean yeah 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 it was a little bit different from the rest of the analysis mode so uh that was kind of sprung on me at the last minute and but we worked through it and it was an amazing experience to to uh sit there for eight hours with, with Anthony Hopkins and uh, uh, work with, you know, one of my heroes. Amazing experience. 
Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much uh, for this episode, for talking to me and for everything that you do. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it too. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks. That's it for us this week. This episode, as all of our episodes are, is produced and edited by Dave Gonzalez. Richard, where can people find your work on the internet? Well, I don't know. They can find my work on VF.com and Ryla's on Twitter. But if they want to find me, again, I will be in the desert looking for (laughs) Naked Ben Barnes. If you have any tips, please email us because I don't want to, you know, the desert's big. I will stay. I will hold down the fort and stay at home. You can find me on VF.com. Follow me on Twitter uh, at Joe Wrote This. But also, mostly, I will be at home re listening to that version of Heart Shaped Box oh, over yeah. and over and, and over again and riding escalators. <laughs> All right. Well, go do that. That sounds great. All right. Um, bye. Bye. These violent delights and violent ends. These violent delights and violent ends. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.